0: Reading will be from Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter three, um, beginning in verse fourteen. Second Timothy three fourteen. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. (coughs) That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires." and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Let's pray. Lord, we again um, are just grateful for what you have given us, that we have a sure revelation, sure word from you, (coughs) and that this (coughs) scripture that you've given us, the word of God, is to lead us to Jesus to salvation, to sanctification, to your glory within each of us. And I pray, God, again, as we look at your word together, that our hearts would be turned to you and that we would trust in Jesus through what you have written in your word. In Christ's name, amen. may be seated. Well, last week um, I spoke on the topic of Revelation and introducing just a short series we're going to do here on the, on the theology of the Bible, or bibliology it's called. And the number one first topic in that, um, in that teaching, that, that um, theology, is Revelation. Revelation is solely the activity of God. It is not something we do, it is something God does. And it is God making himself known, his will, and his ways. But it begins and ends with God. God does not need man in order for God to reveal himself. We are the object of his revelation, but he is the subject of the revelation. It is his doing, his activity, with Christ being the primary subject of all that he reveals. Inspiration is the second topic in Bibliology, and inspiration is also the activity of God. But it involves men, because men are inspired by God to write what God has revealed. And already, I've said that in a way that is not quite true to Scripture, because technically speaking, and this is important, God does not inspire men. God has inspired the writing of Of his revelation. And so the Bible never refers to men being inspired, but it refers to the writings being inspired. How God did that is partly a mystery, but it is nonetheless the clear teaching of Scripture. So it is the activity, inspiration is the activity of God, whereby He uses men with their individual personalities and styles to record his revelation to man without error in the original manuscripts. So those are all different aspects of the, of, uh, that pertain to the definition of inspiration. God's activity, he uses men with their individual personalities and styles to record or write down his revelation to man in a way that is done without error, In the original manuscript. So we'll be working through all of that. The reason this is important is because basically all doctrine, all doctrine, ultimately builds upon the doctrine of Scripture. So whether, as I said last week, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, on and on. Every doctrine builds on the doctrine of Scripture. So the authority of the Bible rests ultimately upon the trustworthiness of Scripture. And if Scripture is not trustworthy, if it is not inspired of God, then how can we know for sure anything that we believe? We use today, we don't even use inspiration much today. Um, when we do use it, sometimes we'll, we'll say, Man, I, that guy that sang the national anthem before that football game, that was inspiring. Um, or somebody can can give a speech. Winston Churchill gave during World War II some inspiring speeches. Um, Sometimes we make reference to maybe a movie. I remember seeing a movie when I was in high school about Shangri-La. Now you know what Shangri-La was until then. And I came home, man, I was inspired. Um, Sometimes I remember in seminary where there was a thousand men and only a hundred women. Occasionally there would be a new girl that would show up on campus and there were a lot of inspired men. Um, I saw my dental hygienist this past week, and I once again was inspired to start flossing. Um, one of these days, I'll maybe get to actually doing it. But those, those are not the ways that Scripture uses the word. And again, there, there are very, very few people today, even on the liberal side, that would deny the doctrine of inspiration. That would, in other words, deny that Scripture teaches on the subject of inspiration. But it's how you define it is where people are all over the map. This is the only place it is used in Scripture. And it's here in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word is written like this. And the whole doctrine of inspiration is built off of this word. And here's the thing. It doesn't say inspiration. It says inspired. So technically, again, to be precise, the word inspiration is not found in the Bible. But the word inspired is in this one location. And it's a compound word. It's two Greek words that were put together to form this word. The word for God and the word for breath, which is also the word for spirit, pneuma. So it's God, pneuma. And so it could have been translated, God spirited the word. But most of the time, theologians say it's God breathed the word. And so because it's never been used any other place, Paul is forming a word through a, through a compound of two words. You can understand why there's a lot of discussion and debate on what it actually means. We all hear people say, well, that word only occurs one time in the Bible. Or that word never occurs in the Bible. <coughs> and they will raise that as a, as a proof that it's not that important or we're making too big a deal out of it. And yet, when it comes to the doctrine of inspiration, this is a doctrine that everyone recognizes is important. Because as I said, every aspect of theology builds off of what do we believe about the Bible. And if we don't believe that the Bible is actually the words of God put to print, then then what can we believe about anything else the Bible says? Everything hinges on this. So, the doctrine of inspiration on the liberal side, or the progressive side, those folks say that it is basically um, an a priori, which I used that word last time on Revelation, it's an a priori assumption, that people begin with an assumption that the Bible is inspired. B.B. Warfield and many others, and um, he was a Princeton theologian in the early 1900s, and he was probably used by God, from what I can tell, more than any other person at the time, and continues to be today, on this subject of the authority of Scripture. And in particular, inspiration and a doctrine that comes from inspiration, the doctrine of inerrancy. And he was very clear, when people say this is an a priori argument, They are just flat out wrong. It is not. It is an exegetical argument. We are taking what Scripture says about itself. And as we exegete Scripture, we have to come to the conclusion that this is what the Bible teaches. And so then he said, when you focus on this compound word, God breathed, it is not the idea that there was an existing book and God just breathed on it and made it special. Okay? That, that is mysticism. That is, that is mythological type of teaching. That is stuff that you would find in some you know, Harry Potter novel or something. That is not what Scripture says. Okay? What, the idea here is that these words on these pages actually came out of the mouth of God. That's the idea. It's not that God... That, these, that men wrote these words and God inspired them after the fact. That God somehow mystically, magically just made them come alive. That is not what the issue is here. The point is, as Warfield said, is that these words actually came from the very mouth of God. And so then that would lend itself, well then what do these people do? Do they just dictate it? And so on the liberal progressive side, they consistently misrepresent the doctrine of inspiration by saying, well, you guys just believe that these people just are dicta- just, just secretaries who are writing down what God said by dictation. No, that's not what Scripture says. And so we're going to look at that. It was not dictated. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. When, when on the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, Moses was... You know, God wrote down on those tablets and then later Moses broke those tablets and he rewrote them. You come to the (coughs) first chapters of Revelation and God is saying to the Apostle John, take up a pen and write what I'm going to tell you to say. Now that's dictation. But for the most part, that is not how the Bible was penned. God was speaking, but God was speaking His words into the very mind's of the writers in such a way that he was using their vocabulary and their personality so that the consequent result is we have a book that is 100% God and 100% man. Because God, as only God can do, worked through the minds and personalities of those people who were writing so that they didn't just hear the thoughts of God, They actually heard specific words that were consistent with their own vocabularies. And they wrote those down. I say heard not audibly, but in their spirit, because God was speaking to the spirit of men from his own spirit. That is an important, these are very, very important things, because this is how scripture is describing itself. I'll develop this more at another time, maybe. So, just with this passage here. What we see here, beginning at, at verse 15, we talk that the scriptures have the power to bring about salvation. So it's talking about the nature of scripture. So Paul's writing to Timothy, and it says, The sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. So the scriptures have the ability to lead you to salvation. And then verse 16, all scripture is inspired. God breathed. Now, I want to just break down some of the key points here. We're going to look at a few passages, <coughs> a few verses and highlight the specific things that are being said. All scripture. It doesn't say most of it. it. Doesn't say the majority of it. it. Says all. So the word the theologians use there is plenary. Inspiration Is plenary. Every part of Scripture, the whole thing is inspired. Not some of it, but all of it. And then the actual words. (coughs) As we'll see in another passage that he speaks, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that God combined spiritual thoughts with spiritual words so that the men wrote the actual words of God. So every part, every word came from God Himself. That is what Scripture teaches about itself. If you look over at 2 Peter, it's another primary passage in the New Testament on the doctrine of inspiration. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Then verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So this is not talking about inspiration so far. Verse 20 is talking about interpretation. So he's saying it's not up to the individual to find his own interpretation to Scripture. No prophecy in all Scripture is written by prophets. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now that, that's something that ought to be preached on more. That we are not, we are, it is not our option to come up with our own interpretation of Scripture. Why not? Because, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So if the prophecy did not originate from man, but it originated from God, then man does not originate an in interpretation to God's original word. You see? If the, if the word of God originated with God, then the interpretation originates with God. That's the point here. God gave the word, and God gives the interpretation to the word. Now, Peter's emphasizing the interpretation, but for the sake of the of the topic in hand, inspiration, the point is, scripture, prophecy, comes from God, not from man. God is the originator of it. And then I made reference to 1 Corinthians 2. Just flip over there, just a few passages here I want us to look at that are absolutely central to our understanding what the Bible teaches on inspiration. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <coughs> beginning in verse 10. For to us God revealed them, the mysteries of God, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God. No one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. Now here it comes, inspiration. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So Paul is telling us how the Bible came about. That God's Spirit spoke to the spirit of man, and communicated the thoughts of God. But he didn't stop with that. Because see again, on the liberal progressive side, they say, well these men, yeah, God communicated, if, some, most don't even allow for that, but some would say God communicated his thoughts. But men wrote them down of their own accord. And that's why we have some discrepancies and some errors in the Bible, is because these guys didn't quite get it right when they wrote it down. They were interpreting God's thoughts. That is not what Paul says. Paul says God combined thoughts with words. He had to. Can you, can, can you share your thoughts with someone apart from words? It's impossible. You have to use words to share thoughts. And God did the same. And so he communicated words to men. And they wrote those words down. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks about the nature of Scripture. And it gets to the subject of inspiration, though he doesn't use the word. Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, that means part of a letter, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So that, why would that be? How is it that not the smallest letter, which is a, as I remember in my Hebrew, a yod, not the smallest letter or part of a letter, and there's one Hebrew letter where there's, where there's this little kicker that comes up on it. It's just, a, it's just a, it would be like the dot on an eye almost. And it says not, not even that, Will, will pass away until it is all fulfilled. Jesus is speaking to the origin of Scripture here. God gave it. Every word, every letter, it has to be fulfilled because it came from God. It is inspired. In Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus says at the end of that verse, Heaven and earth will pass away, <laughs> But my words shall not pass away. In John 10 35, Jesus says the scriptures at the end of that verse cannot be broken. These are just some of the statements that scripture makes about itself. All of it feeds into this doctrine of inspiration. How is it that it cannot be broken? How is it that it cannot fail? How is it that it must be fulfilled? How is it that it has the power of salvation? How is it that that, um, even the the interpretation of it has to be by the Spirit? All because it came from God. Every word. Twice in Scripture, the minute detail is absolutely essential to interpreting what it says. In Galatians, (coughs) Paul will say, God made a promise to the seed, singular, of Abraham. And Paul makes a point and he says, not seeds, plural, but seed, singular. And Paul builds an entire doctrine that the seed referred to is Jesus Christ off of the fact that it is singular rather than plural. Did you know that? So Paul is saying, even the difference between a singular and a plural, I trust, I trust, is from God. Every single letter, even the S on seeds. And Paul didn't feel the freedom to add it because it wasn't already there. You remember the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they came to Jesus in Matthew 22 and they said, listen, there's this guy. He gets married. He dies. He doesn't give his, give his wife any children. So his brother marries and he died. Went through seven brothers. So who in heaven is going to be married to the woman? Ha, ha, ha. They think they've got Jesus stumped. Remember how Jesus responded? Have you not read? The scripture says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't say he was. It says he is. And so Jesus builds an entire doctrine of the resurrection of the believer on the fact that God is Rather than was. Present tense versus past tense. It makes a difference. And so we see Paul and Jesus handling scripture in such a way as to say the tense of a verb. Whether a noun is singular or plural. Makes all the difference in the world. So we do not have the freedom today to dismiss something because it was mentioned only one time. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Oh, that was only mentioned one time. Don't worry about it. Or to come up with our own unique interpretation to Scripture. We do not have that freedom. It came from God. Every single letter, every tense of the verb came from God. It's a big deal. So all we have here is this mysterious union, where the book is 100% God and at the same time 100% man. That shouldn't trouble us. Can I explain that? Can I work all that out? No. But it's the same thing that's true of Jesus Christ. 100% man, 100% God. Theologians call it the hypostatic union of Jesus. Two natures. One person. Scripture. Two natures. One book. Fully God. Fully man. If you can't accept, I shouldn't say you because I believe you all would be on the same page is what I'm talking about. But if a person today cannot accept that this book is 100% of God and 100% of man, then I would challenge that they can't believe the truth concerning Jesus. Because it's the same thing with Jesus. He is 100% God and 100% man. And if a person can accept that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, they should have no trouble accepting what this book says. 100% God, 100% man. It is all from him, every word, the very words themselves. Now, as originally given. (coughs) In other words... The doctrine of inspiration does not extend to our copies. Ooh. What am I saying? Am I saying that this book is not the Word of God? No, I'm not saying that. We do not have any originals today. Nobody has ever seen an original of any book of the Bible. It does not exist. And we're going to develop this more on another Sunday, not today. But what we have are literally tens of thousands of copies. In fact, it's over 100,000. And, and there is so much evidence, and, and more being discovered all the time, that we can put together the New Testament in such a way as to be absolutely assured that what we have here is the, the original Bible. Now, there are some discrepancies. But the point is that wherever there is a discrepancy... When I'm teaching this at school, I've got a whiteboard behind me, and so I'll just write up a sentence and put a blank. So, you know, the little boy blank to the store. Okay? What goes in the blank? Well, one manuscript might say ran. Another manuscript might say skipped. Another one might say walked. Okay? And see, the thing is, just by sake of illustration... We have all these thousands of manuscripts, but we don't have thousands of options for what goes in the blank. In most cases, it's two options. In a few cases, it might be three or four. But the point is, we know exactly what the options are. And so there is no case where we just go, we don't know what goes there. Maybe it said flu. We don't, that doesn't happen. We know that it has to be one of two choices. Sometimes three, sometimes four, and that's about it. And usually it comes down to a misspelled word. Most of these discrepancies deal with word spelling. And the second most common thing is word order. Did it say the Lord Jesus Christ or did it say Jesus Christ the Lord? It makes no difference whatsoever. It is clearly an error of copying. And so, because there is no doctrine whatsoever impacted by the fact that we do not have the original, even skeptics to the Bible, even skeptics acknowledge that the Bible is accurate to the original to down to the thousandth part, 99.9%. And the, and the one thousandth percent, where we aren't absolutely sure, we know exactly what the two or three options would be. So some say, if you want to be truthful about it, we don't have less than the New Testament. We have the original plus some errors. There's no case where we just don't know what goes in the blank. No case whatsoever. So we can step back and say, and again, as time goes on and more copies are found, we can be more sure, not less sure. Because we're constantly having more information where we can check to see that what we have is true, absolutely true, to the original. And so in that sense, we can say because it is true to the original, the copies that we have are inspired. They are authoritative. <coughs> they are sufficient. Scripture is sufficient, meaning you don't have to go beyond Scripture for anything. God gave us a sufficient revelation, sufficient for salvation and for the knowledge of Him. They are clear, they are efficacious. <coughs> Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Efficacious, effective. Now, some false theories of inspiration, or false views of inspiration, and this is what you'll many times hear. I would challenge you before you get involved in any ministry, if you move from Bernie and look for another church, look at that ministry or that church's doctrinal statement and see what it says concerning inspiration. Because again, what they believe about inspiration is going to influence everything else they believe. It is the foundational doctrine. What do they say? And you really want to look particularly for the words infallible and or inerrant. And I'm going to spend some time next week talking about those words. But these are some things you might read. The Bible contains the Word of God. Or the Bible becomes the Word of God. Or the Bible is an accurate record. Of the revelation of God. All three of those statements are wrong. The Bible does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Because, see, if it just contains it, then what else does it contain? You see? So that's that's language to, to confuse you. Language to lead you in a direction that you don't want to go. It's saying we do not believe the Bible is the Word of God. We believe it has some Word of God in it. The Bible becomes the Word of God. A lot of people actually believe this. And so it's the neo-orthodoxy of Karl Barth. Barth, I believe, knew the Lord. But he had become very influenced by the German philosophy of the day. And he had become very existential. And so he said, these are basically just dead words. But they become alive as you encounter Jesus Christ. So wherever you encounter Jesus, that is where you're finding the Word of God. To the extreme, there are seminaries today all across the United States that teach that wherever, whatever you are reading, whatever movie you are watching, if you have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, then that became the Word of God to you. I have a pastor friend who's become more conservative. I thank the Lord for that. That doesn't often happen. But when he first came out of seminary, Southwestern Seminary, in Fort Worth here in Texas many years ago, they were teaching this Becomes the Word of God garbage by Karl Bart, And this pastor, fresh out of seminary, was preaching on inspiration. And he said, he held up his Bible, and he said, this book is not in itself the Word of God, but it becomes the Word of God as you encounter Jesus in it. He says, it is no more inherently the Word of God than Shakespeare is. And then to dramatize his point, he threw his Bible across the room and up against the wall. Southwestern Seminary graduate. Amazing. Amazing. Some would say it is a record of revelation. No, it is the revelation of God. Some would say some parts are more inspired than others. Really? Well, who gets to decide? And how does that work? You see, if every word came from the mouth of God, then how can some words be more from the mouth of God than others? They either came from His mouth or they didn't. So there are not some parts that are more inspired than others. Now, there are some parts that are more important to our faith. Amen? I mean, are are the numbers of people in each of the 12 tribes of Israel going to change your life? Probably not. But does knowing that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins and rose again from the dead, is that going to change your life? Yes. But those numbers of the 12 tribes in Israel are inspired, just as inspired as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as inspired. Some would say all is inspired, but <coughs> it's not all true. Go figure. How does that work? Some would say inspiration pertains to the concepts, but not the words. And we've already said, Scripture does not teach that. It teaches exactly the opposite. Some would say parts are inspired and parts are not. Very much like some parts are more inspired than others. But some would just say, no, some parts are not inspired. And some parts are. And then once again, who gets to decide? The biblical view is that the Bible, in its every single part, the whole thing, in every single word, came from God. No exception. Now. I came across this quote and I found it powerful. Because so much this was written in 1959, this quote. And I think it is more true today than it was in 1959. Not that I would know because I was only 2 years old. Invocation of the authority of the spirit to contradict The authority of the Scriptures threatens, in fact, (coughs) to become the particular blasphemy of the present age. Let me read that again. Invocation of the authority of the Spirit. In other words, appealing to the authority of the Spirit. To contradict the authority of the Scriptures threatens, in fact, to become the particular blasphemy of the present age. That is so, so true. I've never put it in that strong a language. But as I mentioned last week, when people talk about revelation, and I've had this experience, I've had this word from God, appealing to the authority of the Spirit in such a way that the authority of Scripture is contradicted is, in fact, blasphemy. Because the Spirit gave the word. And so we are actually saying something about God when we minimize the significance of the word. We are in much greater danger of minimizing the significance of the word than we are of exaggerating it. It is difficult to exaggerate the importance of God's word. Spend some time meditating on Psalm 119, all 176 verses. And you will come away saying, how in the world can I possibly exaggerate the importance of Scripture? Many of us, one of the first psalms that we memorized was Psalm 1. Remember that psalm? Blessed blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This speaks to the very nature and character of Scripture and what it is able to accomplish in our lives. And to appeal to the authority of the Spirit, to contradict the authority of Scripture, is the present form of blasphemy. So true. That's really all I wanted to cover this morning. I thought it would actually take a little longer. And I don't want to give anybody a heart attack by finishing before 12. But I hope you're seeing the simplicity of these things. It is not complicated. It is profound. And it may make us simple, profound things. Make the believer appear foolish in a world that wants to be wise. And the world's wisdom says you're a fool for believing that every word came from God. We'll spend some time looking at some of those difficulties, some of the so-called errors. I came across a quote by a man. This is, again, you know, 50, 60 years ago. The man knows 45 languages. That's a smart man. He is a scholar in all the Semitic languages, every one of them. And this man wrote and said, "I have become convinced that there is no man who has the intelligence to say that there is an error in the Bible." That comes from a very intelligent man. speaks 45 languages knows all the ancient Semitic languages and says, I don't know a man smart enough to pass judgment on this book and say that this is not the Word of God, that there is an error in this book. There are copyist errors. There are discrepancies in numbers. Those are not contradictions. Those are not, they do not rise to the level of, of attacking or undermining the doctrine of inspiration." This book would not still be changing lives today if it were anything other than what it purports to be the Word of God. And I'm going to spend a Sunday just talking about the supernatural character of Scripture. There is no other book like this. I'll close us in prayer. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for what you have said and what you've said clearly. Even when you spoke from heaven, (coughs) and unbelievers who didn't want to hear it said that it was merely thunder, we know that you spoke distinctly, you spoke clearly, you didn't mumble, you didn't stutter, and we thank you, God, that you are willing to communicate with men in such a way that they can understand and hear. And your word, our Bible is that communication to men. We can take it to the bank. As Jesus said, not one word will fail. It must all be fulfilled. We thank you, God, for this confidence that we can have. As the writer there in Proverbs 30 said, who's considered himself more foolish than any man, but said, every word of God has been tested and found to be true. So we can be fools, God. But be the wisest people on this earth because we accept the truth of what your word says. I pray that we would bank our lives, make every decision, conduct ourselves, O oh God, according to the truth of your word and not according to the wisdom of this world. You will never lead us astray. Your word is a light unto our path. It gives clarity, wisdom, always leads us into what is true, sanctifies the believer, and that we would embrace in humility, God, not passing judgment on your word, not coming up with our own unique interpretations, but even for our understanding of the word, God, to sit humbly before you and say, God, explain, teach. And we thank you that you will. That your will would be done. And that we would be those who worship you in spirit and in truth because we embrace God, which you have said in your word, and we accept it as the complete and true revelation of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.